The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello. All you have to do is write one true sentence, said Ernest Hemingway in A Movable Feast. Write the truest sentence that you know. He was talking to himself in that book, giving himself a pep talk of sorts with the rest of the world in the position of privileged eavesdroppers. And of course, Ernest Hemingway did write sentences, lots of them, his lapidary prose style etching them into the minds and memories of millions of readers. Did he write one true sentence? Hopefully, he wrote lots of them. But what exactly does that mean for a writer of fiction? What does it mean for Hemingway in particular, and what do different readers bring to the truth-seeking party? Mark Torino, the host of the One True podcast, which explores these concepts, and now the author of the book One True Sentence, Writers and Readers on Hemingway's Art, joins us for a discussion of Hemingway and the One True Sentence, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. This is a fun one. I can't wait to get started and share this interview with you. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Actually, we're too much in a we're in too much of a hurry today to walk through the welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack. Well, now I've said it twice. Pretend I never said that. Either time, skip back 15 seconds and then skip forward to now. And we'll really get started. Save some time. So here we go. Mark Chirino is here. He's a professor at the University of Evansville, and he's the author slash editor of seven books about Ernest Hemingway. Make that eight. Actually, the eighth is the one he's put together. It just came out. He put this together along with the producer of One True Podcast, Michael Von Cannon, who teaches at Florida Gulf Coast University. And as I suggested at the outset, It's all centered around this idea, a true sentence, a single true sentence, a building block to fiction. What the podcast does and what the book does, too, is to ask guests, what is Hemingway's one true sentence for you? In all of Hemingway, all of his works, what would you choose as the one true sentence? There are a surprising number of candidates, in my opinion, the book has 38 conversations, I think, and there's a bit of overlap. A couple of guests chose the same one, but not too much. So many sentences, so many Hemingway sentences ring out. But what would you choose, dear listener? What do you think Jack will choose? Because I do choose one. He asked me. I didn't duck the question, though I might have caveated things a bit with a few honorable mentions. It's pretty hard to choose just one, but I found myself trying to sort through the choice. Do you look for a grand and eloquent statement about uh, one of Hemingway's topics, death, 
perhaps, or courage, or grace under pressure? Do you look for something where he talks about war, or bullfighting, or literature, or writing, drinking per now? How about his assessment of his friends and acquaintances, some famous, some intimate, some famous and intimate? But hey, why should you and I go through all this when we have an expert who is farther down the path? He's talked to dozens of guests from all walks of life to explore this question. One True Sentence with Mark Chirino after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Dr. Mark Chirino, Professor and Chair of English and Creative Writing at the University of Evansville in Indiana, who also hosts the One True Podcast, sponsored by the Hemingway Society. Dr. Chirino joins us to discuss his book, One True Sentence, Writers and Readers on Hemingway's Art, which asks several guests to select and discuss their choice of the greatest sentence in Hemingway's work. Dr. Chirino, welcome to the History of Literature. Thanks so much for having me, Jack. It's a pleasure. So let's start with Hemingway and the concept of a one true sentence. Where does that phrase come from? So Hemingway, in his posthumous memoir, A Movable Feast, which was published in 1964, he recalls being a young writer, struggling sometimes, feeling hesitant, unsure of himself. And then he finds motivation in the phrase uh, where he coaches himself, all you have to do is write one true sentence, write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, he says, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. Mm. So one true sentence is really like kind of a cure for writer's block. Yeah. To focus on that immediate task of the next good sentence. Yeah, almost like a a mantra or a a meditation device or a way of kind of clearing out all of the noise and and thinking about the larger project or thinking about who you are and your your position in the world and everything else that might be intruding on your thoughts and just focusing on a 
building a, a story brick by brick. That's exactly right. And Hemingway uh, would often use that metaphor that you just used, Jack, of that he was a bricklayer. Mm. And he would, the words were his bricks, and he would love to count them. He obsessively kept word counts, especially later in his career. But one other thing about One True Sentence that your listeners might like to think about is in that passage in A Movable Feast, Hemingway goes on to say, it was easy because there was always, always something that I knew or had seen or heard someone say. Hmm. And so he is always, as you're saying, it's like instead of all the distractions and complications, he's focusing on the concrete something that he, he can render or describe or uh, convey the significance or emotion of. Yeah, right. And you know what else I love about that passage? My wife, for example, is a huge fan of literature and for the most part can't really stand Hemingway, but she mm -hmm. does like A Movable Feast. And I think uh, even though there's a lot in A Movable Feast that I don't like so much, I think the passages where he's young and he's humble are just so moving and uh, they just, it, it's him at his most vulnerable and his most, uh, I guess, just appealing. I agree. It's So he's writing this 30 years after uh, the events that he's describing. And so he's really is, now he has the luxury of being a Nobel winner, thinking about himself as a, quote, young, starving uh, artist in Paris and I also think it, it might be interesting to think about one, he says one true sentence. You know, he could have said a lot of different adjectives, mm -hmm. but true. And one of the things that we talk about in our book with our guests uh, is what does Hemingway mean by the word true? Uh, it seems like a pretty versatile adjective that you could use to describe a sentence. Yeah. Okay. So tell us about the book and the, the concept of it. Is it, are you just asking them the question? Tell us what your one true sentence is, or are you asking them the one true sentence in Hemingway's work, I guess? Yeah, we use it from all of Hemingway's work. What is your one true sentence and why? And really, it's just an excuse to lead into a, it's like the portal into Hemingway, where we're kind of starting from the inside and then going out rather than you know, viewing the entire kingdom of Hemingway and then trying to penetrate it. It's like, well, what does Hemingway mean to you? What do you find special about him? And, you know, we don't say, uh, we don't define the word true. So true could be the most meaningful or memorable or magnetic, controversial, or the most Hemingway-esque. In other words, if you, how are you to, if you had to describe Hemingway to somebody who had never read Hemingway or really wasn't familiar with him, could you do it by choosing one sentence and then explaining what was so Hemingway-esque about that particular sentence? So it's been really interesting to see how people construe that phrase, one true sentence. Uh, you sometimes learn a lot more about the person doing the interpreting than you do about Hemingway himself. Yeah. And you, uh, how, I guess... I guess you've given us a little bit of a flavor of this, of how guests approach the project, but I'm guessing that you also get a sense of their attitude toward Hemingway and their attitude maybe toward writers and writing in general and, and how they've drawn from that in helping them to put together their own life and their own writing career. We do. Uh, so whenever we speak with a fiction writer and in this in the book, uh, One True Sentence, we have you know, Elizabeth Stroud and Sherman Alexie and uh, 
you know, great writers, Pam Houston. And we, we do ask what the one true sentence concept means to them. If there's, if there's something along those lines where you kind of nail down one sentence and then you ju- it just has a kind of a cascading effect. But one true sentences can be chosen because you like them stylistically or structurally, or it tells you something thematically about something. We've had some contributors talk about the last sentence of The Sun Also Rises. Isn't it pretty to think so? Which is, you know, one of Hemingway's great sentences, but maybe one of the reasons that is a great sentence is because it's just the right tone. The adjective pretty is so perfectly chosen. And so uh, people will choose it uh, in that way. I I also want to say, Jack, sorry to add on to that, but let me just say, we do have, you know, in the case of isn't it pretty to think so, we have more than one contributor talk about the same sentence, mm. and they do it in different ways. So it's just like you could use the same ink blot on two different uh, patients or two different uh, observers, and you would learn two completely different things. It, it all comes back to your approach, your attitude, and, you know, what your perspective is on Hemingway. Yeah. Well, that would be on my short list of sentences. I can remember uh, a friend of mine gave me a copy, his copy of The Sun Also Rising. He had that underlined about 10 times. <laughs> and uh, I I think my theory about that sentence, about one of the things that makes it so great is, you know, the, the side of Hemingway that always I find that I have to read, especially as I get older with a little bit of kind of a grain of salt, is the kind of bombastic side and the the chest thumping side and that is one where again it shows some vulnerability it is you know Jake Barnes is giving a sort of um he's giving his own view of the world he seems like the smartest guy in the room to say that but he's asking it as a question and he's there's some real regret in there and some uh, sort of wistfulness that comes through and what I like about it is that Hemingway trusts the fiction to do it you know, that he is trusting his art to convey that. He's not he's not over-talking it or over-explaining it. He's just letting that question just ring through. Uh, and he trusts it so, so much, he's willing to uh, end his book with it and trust the readers to get his meaning. Well, that's really well said, especially because what you read from it when you say, I see the, you know, wistfulness, Hemingway, as, as your listeners will recall, Hemingway never says, isn't it pretty to think so? I said wistfully or yeah. I said regretfully. <laughs> no, no, no. It's just the words. So how he says it or how you hear Jake Barnes saying it might be completely different. Um, other people might find it uh, sarcastic, mm-hmm. bitter, bitterly ironic. And I think there's an interpretation that accommodates that. Um, but there's also that wistfulness, and Hemingway was really trusting about his reader. Um, a lot of these one true sentences talk about his iceberg theory, where by omitting right. details or emotion, the reader will in fact become a collaborator. And I think if there's one thing, one commonality, we talk to a lot of different people on One True Podcast, but if there's one commonality is that our guests are active readers and interpreters. They are not uh, reading, you know, reading is an activity, not a pastime. It's not passive. And 
you know how Emerson said there is creative reading just like there's creative writing. Hmm. Uh, that's the one, the one commonality of all of these guests is that they are Hemingway's collaborators, not just his audience. Hmm. Right. Okay. So I would like to ask you if a guest has ever chosen a sentence that you dislike, but I suspect you're, you're not going to answer that with specificity. So I'll ask it this way. <laughs> uh, has a guest ever chosen a sentence that initially surprised you or maybe you're you you were scratching your head of why this one but then the guest convinced you through their answer that it was a worthy choice yes my answer to that is yes so obviously if somebody said i chose isn't it pretty to think so uh, uh or a man can be destroyed but not defeated you know from the old man so you're like okay i you know i kind of saw that coming that's that's reasonable um i will point out that even when people point out famous quotes they can still shed insight on them for their idiosyncratic interpretations of it or what is individual to them. So everything to me has great value. But I would say uh, we had a guest, Mark Ott, who talked about a line from Big Two-Hearted River. And the line is, the river was there. Mm. And I was like, you know, I've probably read Big Two-Hearted River dozens of times. And I'm sure that sentence is in there. But I can't remember stopping and saying, ah, there it is. You know, he's landed on his one true sentence. And so he says, all right, I would like to talk about the river was there. And you're sort of like, all right, I'm all ears. Let's hear it. And what it really showed, you know, the river was there. And then we're talking, we spent a, a lot of that show talking about how Hemingway views nature and the permanence of nature versus the impermanence. This is a big two-hearted river, of course, is about Nick Adams, who's just come home from World War One. And so having that permanence would mean something psychically and emotionally and spiritually to him. So it was a real revelation to hear such a simple, like a throwaway sentence actually becomes the hub of somebody else's interpretation of that story. Mm, right. What is it about Hemingway and his works that seem to fit this project so well? I, I can imagine other authors who I think would work and maybe a, a smaller number of authors that I think might not work so well. But Hemingway seems to particularly suit this idea. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it might go back to that bricklaying metaphor that you uh, presented, where Hemingway, by coining the term one true sentence, he's sort of inviting us to think along these lines. And he's saying, right, well, one, it's like one true sentence. And then you, so it beckons us as readers to say like, okay, well, what is he talking about? And will we know it when we come onto one? Um, I, I, and Jack, I'd like to hear your opinion about this. I really think this exercise is open for any, any writer and any reader who is creative and inventive and curious about any writer. I think this would work. I know that when I teach American literature at the University of Evansville, sometimes when we start William Faulkner, I know that can be a very difficult uh, phase of the semester for, for new students. But sometimes just starting with a particular sentence, kind of, okay, we're all looking at the same thing, and let's kind of go nice and slow, and this can be the entrance into a more complicated discussion of more complicated sentences. So I don't know, what, what writers are you thinking about that would and wouldn't work? 
Well, I think you're right that that Hemingway does invite this because of, you know, I could imagine some writers might object to it and say, you know, if you take one sentence, you're ripping it out of context. And I write for story or I write for, you know, you'd I'd want you to read at least three pages or something. I wouldn't want you to isolate an individual sentence. And then there are some writers who were so painstaking with their prose like Flaubert or Joyce. And, you know, they might say, yes, every sentence I honed them to be, you know, the diamond like and feel free to take whichever one you want and admire it for what it is. And then there are a lot of authors. I think there are some authors where you would maybe run out of really good choices. But I think the authors, you know, all of the great authors would have so much that are um, little surprises or words of wisdom or, you know, things that a character does that surprises you or says something that surprises you. I'm thinking of Jane Austen or George Eliot or Henry James or, you know, people like that, where it's like you see in a sentence, oh, this is an entire world that they've kind of encapsulated here, an entire worldview or an entire character's, uh, you know, this was so surprising, but uh, I guess it was the Flannery O'Connor line of the inevitable surprise. You know, it, it, yeah. it rings so true. Yeah, and there, there's an infinite number of ways that you can respond to a sentence. So, you know, some of the ways are the ways you just described, which is like you find a world in it, or it becomes a synecdoche for the entire work or the entire artist, you know? So I think that's really, the possibilities are sort of limitless. I mean, Cormac McCarthy, wouldn't that be interesting Say like, hey, hey, tell me what your, you know, what's a, what's one sentence that you always remember from Cormac McCarthy or or something like that. I think that would really would really work. I can tell you, I remember in graduate school, I was really lucky, and Andre Asaman was my professor uh, in a Proust seminar, and we used to spend forty five minutes on a on a on a sentence in yeah. Proust, right, and. Under the hands of somebody who's a really good reader and a really good writer and a, someone who's curious and knowledgeable, I think any sentence will come alive. I mean, the river was there, right? That, that, that is the one that you're like, well, you can't make a show on that. You can make a show on anything. You can make a discussion on anything as long as it has meaning for the reader. So the reader can create one true sentence just as easily as Hemingway could. Mm. Yeah. Are you finding that you're learning about how people today are reading Hemingway? Mm. Are there are there any camps you can place people in for their attitudes toward Hemingway or is everybody different? I think uh, camps. I'm very hesitant to talk about camps. But what I would say is everybody seems really exhausted with the biography. Mm. They seem like what you, in fact, you said this early, earlier in our conversation about the, you know, the chest thumping, uh, the Papa braggadocio sort of misogynist, it's kind of boring. And one of the things that one true sentence reminds us is the guy was a magnificent writer at his best. And the, so I think what I'm learning is that people are learning, uh, people are eager to get rid of the hype and return to the page. And for me, that is a really welcome uh, transition. I know, you know, even I would even add the recent Ken Burns uh, and Lynn Novick documentary of, of Hemingway and uh, Ken Burns and Lynn Novick wrote the introduction to our book. 
Um, even though it was about his biography, it was a biography that wasn't about the Papa cartoon or caricature. And it really endeavored to get to the substance. And as best as a, you know, as a documentary could possibly do it, I think that it succeeded. And so again, a return to the work will sort of refresh these kind of stereotypes and preconceptions about Hemingway, I think. Mm. Okay. So do you mind if I turn the tables and ask you your one true sentence? But before you answer, just just <laughs> let me know if that's uh, if you're going to do that or not. I don't mind at all, as long as you give me yours. Is, would that be fair? Okay, that's is fair. That, so, is that, I mean, that's isn't that reasonable? That is reasonable, and I have sort of a surprising take. Uh, I think might surprise you a little bit. I'll take some liberties with my choice. But before we do that, let's take a quick break, and we'll give us some time to think about it, and then we'll come back with your choice and my choice. Okay, Dr. Mark Chirino, expert in the one true sentence in Hemingway's works as chosen by others. The moment is here. What is your one true sentence? Okay, my one true sentence, Jack, is also from A Movable Feast. And as a little bit of context, in 1922, Hemingway was on a uh, work trip. He was uh, working as a journalist in uh, Switzerland. His wife, Hadley... Mm went to surprise him and brought him all of his manuscripts that he was working on unpublished, including the carbon copies. This is a very famous literary uh, event that happened in December 1922. She goes to get a drink of water in a Paris subway station and <laughs> the suitcase gets stolen. Uh, since Hemingway wasn't Hemingway back then, someone is stealing it for the suitcase and not for the papers inside. But Hadley now has to travel all the way up from France to Switzerland and to tell her husband, Ernest Hemingway, I've lost all of your unpublished writing. So imagine that uh, long, dreadful trip. And then Hemingway receives the news. She's distraught. And Hemingway's like, I can't believe she brought all the stuff and the carbon copies. So this is Hemingway in a movable feast looking back on this event. And so here comes the sentence. It was true, all right. And I remember what I did in the night after I let myself into the flat and found it was true. And the reason that is my one true sentence is because I don't think the iceberg theory that we were talking about is ever exemplified better in a single sentence than that. So what the sentence tells you is he remembers what he did. And he goes through the description of letting himself into the flat and determining that it, in fact, it is true. But he doesn't tell you practically anything else. Uh, what did he do? Okay, so you remember what you did. What did you do? Did you? And so then now it's our job as curious readers, active readers to say, okay, uh, what would I have done? Uh, what could he have done? 
what's the worst thing he could have done? Knowing what I know about Ernest Hemingway, what do I think he probably did at that moment? And even one more question, which is, why isn't he telling us? Yeah, right. He tells us about and, lots of other stuff. Yeah. And yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of been his thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In a, yeah, yeah. We, we learned things we never thought we'd know in a movable feast. And then here, at a moment of such emotional crisis, he gives you just the very bare minimum. And so I, I, I found that sentence absolutely brilliant. But the reader has to participate in the text. You can't just sit back and go, okay, good, he remembers. You have to go, no, 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 what does he remember? Yeah, and also, like we were saying before, for inviting the readers to participate, in a way it asks more of you, and it asks you to be an active reader and to put some of yourself into the process. But it also lets you live with multiple interpretations at once. So when I was talking about, isn't it pretty to think so, and having it be wistful, I also have in mind the potential for sarcasm there and the potential for him being kind of bitter when he's saying it or saying like, you know, you don't really know anything about the world, Brett, you know, but to have all of that possibility in one sentence, it makes it expand outward in a way that's kind of breathtaking. Yeah, you know, I one thing I compare it to, and you know, you've described it really well. One of the things that I would compare it to is if you ever look at an old movie, the way that people used to act mm. in a kind of an operatic caricature of you know emotions, and now you look at acting these days, or let's say really good acting these days, and because it's understated, mm. it requires the viewer to interpret it just a little bit more. You're just a little bit more involved in trying to break down what that character is going through. And I think it's made movies more authentic. And then you go back and you try looking at the histrionics of an older movie, and it's like, well, that, that almost seems inappropriate. And as Hemingway said, I went back and then I broke a lamp, or I went out and got drunk, or I went out and I, you know, I beat somebody up. In a way, if it were really easy for him to tell us what he did, it would almost cheapen the moment. Uh, this conversation is actually making me think of another example from The Sun Also Rises that you might think of. I'll just, I, I know I'm cheating because you, you only asked for one, one true <laughs> sentence, but this is, a, this is an addendum. This is 1A. You, you might remember this from The Sun Also Rises. So in that novel, only one person dies, and it's not a main character. It is a guy running with the bulls named Vicente Gerones. And there's an exchange after this happens. And uh, somebody tells the character, Bill Gorton, I think it might be Jake, uh, somebody was killed out there today. And all Hemingway writes, and this ends a chapter, Bill says, was there? Question mark. And if this were a movie or a play, think of how many different ways an actor could say that and still be true to the text. Was there, I mean, in my life, when, when people say, was there, sometimes that's dismissive. Or you could say it because there's really no other, there are no other words to say. It's so shocking and deep and tragic yeah. that you, you let that, you know, I mean, you say it through a minimalist phrase. And 
Hemingway was completely comfortable letting the readers interpret through their own individual perspective, at least at his best, he was. Yeah, right. That's the thing. When he's at his best, that's what he's doing. And that's why all of the examples I think we've chosen so far are where the fiction, he's trusting the fiction to do the work and the readers to do the work. And the temptation is to take some of his sort of philosophizing sentences, which uh, also have some value, but sometimes when you look at them, they're not actually as profound as he's able to make them seem somehow. And he, he's, you know, he's got such a, a command of cadence and facility with concrete language that sometimes he can state things that make it seem like, oh, this is something that you should, you know embroider on a pillow or write on your mirror to remind you of every morning or something. And then you look at it and you're like, well, is that really so <laughs> profound? It seems to be saying something most people would know and agree with. I think so. And, you know, if we were to do one true sentence with uh, Faulkner or James Joyce, then maybe we wouldn't choose a word, uh, excuse me, a sentence that allows interpretation for the reader. We might choose one that is more prescriptive or that's more of an epigram or something like that. So I think uh, to get back to what we, you know, what we were saying earlier in the conversation, uh, perhaps each writer's one true sentence would be true to them. And so for Hemingway, you know, man can be destroyed but not defeated. Well, that might not ring true to you. And that's totally fine that you would choose something like the river was there or was there, something that in a normal, like in a Faulkner novel might not stand out might not attract your attention the way it does in a Hemingway novel. Mm, yeah. And for someone like a Joyce, you might choose something that's so brilliant and linguistically inventive and just something you just admire because here's somebody who had so much of this in his, his brain was just crackling with these ideas and the way he was putting words together and stuff. You probably wouldn't choose Hemingway for that kind of a principle, but it's perfect for Joyce. I think that's completely valid. I think that's completely valid. Uh, Jack, what is your one true sentence and why? Okay, so I've run through a bunch of these. And let me just tell you that if I were doing this uh, for your project, I would be very respectful of it. And I would uh, choose <laughs> I would I would choose one that fits, fits in the themes of your show and everything. But I'm actually going to choose one that he did not write. But let mm. me tell you some of the ones that I was considering from his works. I, that is a curveball. Yeah. Yeah, so we'll get there. But I was thinking of, I wanted to take something from A Movable Feast because I do love it so much. I was thinking of the line, uh, hunger is good discipline, which had been very important to me when I was young and hungry. But I, I double-checked and I actually saw the sentences, hunger is good discipline and you learn from it, which kind of tainted it for me a little bit. For some reason, I only remembered it as hunger is good discipline, which I sort of preferred. So I crossed that one out. And then I had a few others like... If you are lucky enough to have lived in Paris as a young man, wherever you go for the rest of your life, it stays with you for Paris is a movable feast. That's one where I think I like it because I like the sentiment and, and what it's saying, but also it's Hemingway could sometimes have a little flourish that was surprising. I mean, the phrase movable feast is, you know, it's it's good enough that he used it for the title, but it's also... As much as he gets sort of satirized or, you know, characterized as someone who is using very simple words and simple sentences and not using adverbs and so on, every once in a while he has something that reminds you that he actually 
had kind of an artistic sensibility. And so I sort of enjoy that movable feast is something that a nice little phrase there. It is. Jack, let me just cut in and say Paula McLean, uh, a contributor to our book, chose there is never any ending to Paris and the memory of each person who has lived in it differs from that of any other. So you and Paula McLean are aligned. We're on the same page. And then I also had, uh, isn't it pretty to think so, which is mm-hmm. probably my favorite line. And I also like the way that that being the last sentence of The Sun Also Rises and then the start of A Farewell to Arms is so famous. And it always kind of reminded me of a an album where you, yeah. <laughs> you hear the end of one <laughs> yeah. side and you flip it over and play side two. And I thought this is sort of Hemingway when he's, at his, the peak of his fiction writing powers, and he's kind of, uh, you can just flow from the end of that book into... Uh, and they're great in such different ways, you know. Yeah. The, the last sentence of, a, of The Sonos Rises and the first sentence of A Farewell to Arms are both magnificent, but it almost is like different writers wrote them. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it's a very good point. Yeah. Okay, so here's... And let me... Uh, <laughs> I have it written down here. Let me tell the fill in the listeners if they're uh, if they're wondering about the first sentence of a farewell to arms. It's in the late summer of that year. We lived in a house in a village that looked across the river and the plain to the mountains. Mm. And it's again that kind of uh, concrete language. You know, it's not the chest thumping. I'm going to tell you all about what it's like to be in the middle of a bullfight and how bullfighters will look at me while I'm sitting in the stands and know that I know what they know. And we're all like, (laughs) we all know what it means to face death and all of that. But just sort of like, I'm here to tell you a story and I'm going to trust the words to paint you the picture and to be, uh, to create the mood and fiction has power and I'm going to deliver it. Okay. Here's my sentence. So this is, (laughs) I have to explain this a little bit. So what I like most when I think about Hemingway, in addition to the, the works that I like the most, are the influence he had on the people who read him and who have read him and the writers who came after. And it's really hard to see now how different he was and how infectious he was and how charismatic he was through his prose. And I read once something I've never forgotten, that when he was at his peak, people changed the way that they talked to one another, (laughs) where they would go out to parties and they would be talking in Hemingway language, you know, like Hemingway dialogue to one another. And that's pretty unusual in literature that, (laughs) that you would have that kind of an impact on an entire generation of people, in addition to the impact of kind of inspiring you. He makes you want to go out and drink and travel through Europe and go fishing and hunting and skiing and go to Cuba and all the things that you, he just makes you want to live life in the way that his characters and his settings and his narratives are of people living life. But also just the way that it would change kind of how you interact with one another is really, uh, if you can separate out some of Hemingway's negatives of his personality, which also creeps into his fiction, but if you can separate out what we know of his biography and everything, you do have this wonderful, life-affirming author who, you know, he makes people want to write, too. People who would never otherwise think about writing a story, they, they, they are inspired to write by Hemingway, thinking, 
this is something worth putting down. This is something worth recording. So with kind of that in mind and the idea that all of these writers who came after him had sort of a clean sweep, that he was he was sweeping away the mannered style and he was saying that you can do in prose that follows the King James Bible or the telegraphs or the newspapers or, you know, that you can, you can you can speak in these simple terms and you can state things one after another, laying down these bricks, that that can be the way that you don't have to write like Henry James in order to be profound. And yet people who came after also said, but you can also be a little more ornate. You can be a little more, uh, you can think a little bit more about your prose and the 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 word choice and the, the style. You can be um, a little more poetic, perhaps. And so the sentence I'm choosing is actually one that comes from John Cheever's notebooks. And John Cheever was a great fan of Hemingway, as you probably know. Sure. Uh, and one of the things I wanted to to note this first before I get to the sentence, he wrote in his notebook in 1961, this is John Cheever writing, he said, Hemingway shot himself yesterday morning. There was a great man. I remember walking down a street in Boston after reading a book of his and finding the color of the sky, the faces of strangers, and the smells of the city heightened and dramatized. And later in the passage he says, he put down an immense vision of love and friendship, swallows, and the sound of rain. There was never in my time anyone to compare with him. And I think when I was reading Cheever in these notebooks, it just sort of reminded me of or helped me see why I had enjoyed Hemingway, even as I was kind of starting to see some of the problems with Hemingway. I was feeling like there is something worthwhile here and something that I can use not just for my interest in literature, but for my life. And uh, just feeling like Hemingway had done that for someone as as smart and as accomplished as Cheever and seeing it kind of happen in real time. Uh, And so there's another part in Cheever's notebooks where he says, uh, this comes from 1970, and he's writing about a story that he read by Hemingway. And he writes, there is the old four stress cadence. We lived that year in a house on a hill. And he says, sometimes beautiful and sometimes monotonous. Mm. And that sentence, I looked for it because I wondered what story he was reading. I'm pretty sure it it doesn't exist in Hemingway's fiction. And (laughs) and it just, um, but what I loved about it was Cheever's writing in his notebooks and he's trying to analyze what he likes or what he doesn't like about Hemingway's prose because he himself is a writer and he's going to use what he can and use that as a platform for what he wants to do as an artist. And so I just loved that he was thinking about it on that level where he jotted down for himself an example that wasn't even one that he was taking from Hemingway, but one that to him exemplified Hemingway. We lived that year in a house on a hill. And to me, like that was so, I mean, it's it's similar to the start of A Farewell to Arms, but it was so... um, it's so close to something Hemingway would have written. It rang so true to me as a Hemingway sentence. I figured it must have been in a story. And then to see that Cheever had made it up and had used it to sort of remind himself, here's how Hemingway writes, and I can do that if I want, 
but I have to be careful not to be as monotonous as it sometimes can be. And how do I get the beauty from that? And how do I avoid the monotony? Uh, it just, um, to me, I just found it thrilling that it was telling me about writers and what they read and how they borrow and learn from other writers and how they improve it and avoid pitfalls and so on. And, and that Hemingway was such an innovator that others could use him as this platform and see how they could follow his example and, and improve upon it. I just was completely inspired by that. No, that is, that's fantastic. And you bring up I mean, a really good point, which is that when you are talking about the Hemingway-esque, it is a double-edged sword because mm. you find the essence of what made him great. But then if it's when Hemingway becomes self-conscious and he starts saying, oh, I have to write Hemingway-esque stuff, then it becomes sort of sodden and it doesn't have that, that life. Some of the one true sentences or one true novels or stories had. So I think Cheever, I mean, you, your point and Cheever's point are absolutely perfect. I also would say, um, I know that you've done some shows on Walt Whitman. In the preface to Leaves of Grass, he is talking, uh, well, he talks about a lot of things in the preface to Leaves of Grass, but when he talks about uh, the, the function of art or poetry, and he says, you know, after you read a really good poem, the daylight is lit with a more volatile light. Mm-hmm. And your victories are more victorious, your your sorrows are more tragic, and it just intensifies art. Good writing intensifies the feeling of being alive, the human experience. And so, yes, Hemingway could do it at his best. John Cheever could do it at his best. Any of the writers that you talk about on your program can do it at at their best, and that is what is such a joy to celebrate. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Okay, the podcast is called One True Podcast. The book is called One True Sentence. Dr. Mark Chirino, thank you so much for joining me on The History of Literature. Always a pleasure, Jack. Thank you. Okay, there we go. Wasn't that fun? My thanks to Mark Chirino for joining me. I wonder what your one true sentence is. Let me know at historyofliteraturepodcast at gmail.com, our new email address. Say hi to Emma, the producer, while you're there. Speaking of which, Emma has some picks. She's been doing some selecting. We'll be doing one of those on Thursday, I think, hopefully launching that series, Emma's Picks, where she chooses a story for me to read and discuss. We might do that monthly if things work out. Got a lot of requests. Let's get some more fiction, Jack. Well... There's some in the archives, but I get it. Sometimes it's kind of nice. Just plug in those headphones or AirPods, earbuds, whatever you call them, and listen. Let the, the great works of literature unfurl. Okay, so do check out Mark's book, One True Sentence, available at bookstores everywhere, and his podcast, One True Podcast. His website is HemingwaySociety.org slash podcast. I got a little distracted. I meant to say email. Oh, email to tell us your one true sentence. But here's another question I have. Apart from Hemingway, what author would lend itself to this kind lend himself or herself, I guess? What author could also be used for this kind of endeavor? Who else writes great sentences, memorable sentences? 
ones you can hold up to the light and and turn to see all the different sparkling angles. Let us know if you have an idea of one. I have two or three in mind, but surprisingly few, actually. Imagine, imagine you were putting out a podcast like this, like the one true sentence. Which author would be have enough sentences that guests would choose and enough guests who have read that author that they would be able to choose one? It's not easy. Hemingway is maybe the perfect example. Okay. Anyway, if you have an idea for one, expand my horizons through History of Literature Podcast at gmail.com. I'm Jack Wilson, he of the narrow but looking to expand horizons. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.